life and experiences they've humbled me like you can only control what you can control man like you guys know how it is swimming swimming is a fine sport and it could be my best day and somebody else's worst day or it could be vice versa uh so making the team representing my country cheering on my teammates doing the best i can do in that water and uh wherever it ends up you know what i'm saying we throwing a party regardless <laughs> Welcome back to the Social Kick Podcast. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a full crew, Dr. John Mullen, Luke Paddington, and Paralympic swimmer Jamal from the Swim Uphill Organization Hill. What's up, Jamal? How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. Super honored to be on the show today. Thank you all for having me. Well, we've been talking for a while. Actually, one thing that we just learned was, did you go to high school up here by us in the in the Bay Area? So, <laughs> no. So, Hanupro Sarah High School is actually a very popular it's a very popular Catholic school name. Oh. I did not go to Hanipro Cerro in the Bay. Uh, there's also Hanipro Cerro down here. And uh, I think like not Mission Viejo, but someplace around there. I went to the Hanipro Cerro in Gardena, California. So uh-huh. very close to Inglewood. Yeah, we were, we were going, shoot, he went to the same school as Tom Brady, man. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Tom Brady wishes he went to my school. That's maybe. right. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, shoot, man, you, you've been doing a lot of really great work with your foundation and making a name for, um, you know, I guess uh, the, the swimming community uh, abilities and disabilities. And, you know, uh, just candidly, there's a whole lot that I think the casual swimming community um, doesn't know or understand about Paralympic swimming, about classifications and, yeah. and that sort of stuff. So I, honestly, I, I really was hoping that it might be able to just share and talk about first, like, you know, uh, what it is, how would you describe your ability? And also, yeah. if you could just give us a landscape on how how the framework works with classifications. Absolutely. If I may, I'm going to jump on that right away, I promise you, but I have to highlight this. So real quick, my nonprofit is not a foundation. Um, that, that's an important delineation in, in language. Foundations, uh, they give away money, they bequest funds. Um, what we do is we provide mm-hmm. services. So we're actually just, you know, 501c3, we are a nonprofit, but not a foundation. Uh, so, so that's it. That, just, I appreciate that. Thanks yeah, for no, clarifying. No problem, man, no problem. It's all yeah. love. Um, give me one more time that question, please. Okay. So just wanted to know if you could give us a, a, an outline of first, how would you describe your abilities and mm-hmm. also the architecture for the classifications within para swimming? And kind of where you fall on within that framework. For sure, for sure. Uh, so, number one, I have a type of disease called Charcot-Marie-Tooth. So, it's three last names of the French scientists who discovered this disease. Mm. Uh, CMT is, is the acronym. It affects probably about one in 2,500 Americans. Um, and... It affects my peripheral nerve. So that's just a fancy way of saying my, my lower extremities. So from my elbow to my fingertip, I have about 30% nerve conductivity. And from my kneecaps to the soles of my feet, I have 0% nerve conductivity. Uh, to put that into perspective terms, your elbow from your elbows to your knees, you have eight reflex zones, okay? So like one common one is the doctor hits your knee and the leg kicks up. None of those work on me. Those are all those are all uh, non-starters. Um, let's see, another one is that kind of helps people imagine it. You guys definitely know this, right? So we all know the Kill Bill franchise, right? Uma Thurman, 
Yeah. Right, she comes out of the coma, and it may, it may be the first one. I think she comes out of the coma. She's in the back of the in the back of the yellow truck outside of the hospital. Yep. Yep. She's talking to her big toe, like wiggle, big toe, wiggle. So for me, that conversation happens all the time. Only the big toe never starts to wiggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that's kind of what nerve conductivity means in the peripherals. My brain is sending signals to these extremities, but uh, it's like a, it's like a feedback loop. It never makes it to where it is supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, it does. But how do, how does that impact um, you know I guess how you walk? For sure. Uh, so impacting how I walk again, uh, a kind of visual that I provide to people is imagine a double above knee amputee uh, on prosthetic limbs. Only my limbs are flesh and blood, right? They're, they're actually not prosthetics. So it's like I'm walking on my knees at all times. That's what the sensation is for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've been living with this since I was 10 years old. I'm 26 now, so 16 years. I've developed some humbly, some pretty impressive compensation patterns. <laughs> um, it, it is one of those types of, you know, uh, disabilities that doesn't fall into the classic stigma of disability, you know, so so it's considered almost an invisible disability. Um, I've developed these massive, massive muscles on my lower back, on my lumbar region that help me, you know, stand erect, that help me move, that help me walk. Uh, I trip a lot, even still, even, even with 16 years of practice, I stumble a lot. I drop things a lot. Uh, I'm definitely, I don't play with my phone in bed because I've smacked my face too many times. Um, you know, I drink very quickly because too many times have I dropped a glass out of my hand. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> just knock it down and then put it down. Um, and in the pool, really, uh, especially with me being a sprinter, you know, my lower legs are really kind of just a drag they just really increase my drag at this point mm-hmm. like I'm picking from my glutes on through uh through my hamstrings but everything from my knee down is really drag um i have a uh you know quite frankly a pretty poor start uh we even had to get creative with how i dive off the blocks just because mm-hmm. i'm not able to generate really any like upward lift along with forward propulsion mm-hmm. off the blocks and that compromised state of bending over Six four guy. I've never dunked a basketball, so that kind of puts it into perspective. There, I'm just not able to, you know, get the leg power from just coming off my knees. And then uh, with the hand placement again, where you know this is a swimming podcast, so we we can talk. Yeah, um, you know, when that stroke comes around and really trying to find that placement, especially at high speeds, uh, I, I tend to get like seizures in my hands. Um, it's very difficult to, to kind of, to catch water in the front of the stroke, uh, and, and just like, and keep good form, you know, like what's so important. So a lot of things, uh, but, but that's a snapshot of it. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that there's, there's, do you forget about your ability in the water more than on land? Like does water, this help you? You just described all the ways that you feel it and, yeah. and it inhibits you, but at the same time, does the water help the, the other moments really just feel Jamal? Yeah. Not what yeah. You mean? I do know what you mean. Mm. Um, I, I, the water is definitely therapeutic. Right. Uh, as far as individuals with, with this type of neuropathy going, I think almost all individuals in, in the disability space, whether it be cognitive, um, or physical, uh, you know, handicaps. The water is a therapeutic element. 
most people I see with Sharkamaria Tooth who are involved in water sports have retained some amount of their walking abilities. The average person with Sharkamaria Tooth actually wears metal leg braces like Forrest Gump or is wheelchair bound for most of the time. So 100%, I think the water, you know, helps with the connection, you know, that the proprioception aspect kind of being surrounded and engulfed in the, you know, in the, in the viscosity, right? Definitely not air. In terms of like, increased ability though no no especially, you know, doing it at a high level right yeah, like, exactly I'm to do it at a high level so it's thing. frustrating it's frustrating as he double hockey yeah, sure. man like, it's frustrating as heck well jamal i want to come back to i really want to get in deep on um technical and 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 talk to you about technique and some of the some of the things that you've employed i think it's fascinating um but let's let's hit on the classifications though before mm-hmm. we forget so what's 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 sort of the outline of classifications in para? yeah for sure that's a great question uh so there's classifications um s1 all the way through s14 so the lower regions and you know again Bear with me here. I'm not a classification specialist. So if anyone hears this and they're like, you're wrong, Jamal, this is a a general, right? So the lower classifications, I think it's like one to four is going to be mostly like invalid. So people who are maybe like quadriplegics, which is impressive, massively impressive. You know what I'm saying? Uh Um, Quadriplegics, uh, people with uh, major spinal cord injuries. Uh-huh. Um, who just have, you know, pretty super, super limited motion. Um, as we kind of move through the five to six range, uh, we move into dwarfism athletes who have that. When we kind of get into the seven to 10 range, that's going to be athletes with varying degrees of physical impairment. So it may be, you know, um, a hand deficiency, a lower leg deficiency, someone like myself dealing with neuropathy. Uh, when we get from 11, to I think it is about 13. That's when you're dealing with the visually impaired for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then classification 14 uh, is going to be some type of cognitive impairment. Okay, thank you. And then how do, what's the concentration like for uh, the athletes, you know, kind of in competing in those? Are there like really competitive classifications and yeah. some that maybe have fewer participants? For sure. I think, uh, you know... I'm not a statistician on this. I know a lot of stats, but admittedly, I don't know too many stats on this. I would definitely say in terms of entertainment, though, and uh, what I think a lot of people are able to really engage in, it's all amazing. But I think the most engagement probably comes from, you know, the the rages S9 and S10. Like, though, that's kind of like the hot seat of competition. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, even that said, like there are people who are quadriplegics that swim way better uh, and way faster than lots of people I know who have full access to all of their limbs and functions. Yeah. Okay. And then what events are, are you swimming? Is there a wide range of events or like give us yeah. a yeah, That's a great question, man. And this is kind of where the Paralympics gets a little, it starts to get confusing and convoluted. And this is a marketing problem that I think they're starting to solve. Um, you know, obviously on the Olympic side, right, it's same range of events, right, but only there's a male and female split, right? In America, two athletes go for each event for the men, two athletes go for the women. And the Paralympic circuit, same range of events. However, every category does not have an opportunity to compete on what would be the Paralympics, the Paralympic level, right? Happens every four years following the Olympics um, for that category, right? So let's just say 
an S10 athlete may only have an opportunity to race on the Paralympic level in the 50-meter freestyle, not the 100-meter freestyle, the 100-meter backstroke, the 200-meter butterfly, the 400 IM. And then an athlete in the S6 category may be able to compete in the uh, 100-meter freestyle, right? And the 400-meter free. So, so it's kind of a it's kind of a shuffleboard um, as to where you fall, and then what races are eligible for the actual Paralympic Games that quad. Why is it structured that way? Do you know? I, you know, just I don't know how. I don't really know, but I would think just because, like, dude, it would be too much. It would be literally too overwhelming, right? We're talking about fourteen categories, right? Even if we just take the base, right? Times times four right? Because there's two men, two women times every event. Like the games will go on forever at this point, right? (laughs) Um, So I think it's just too much. It's too much to keep track of. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. It's just too much. What event do you not have access to that you would love to be able to compete in? Oh man, well this quad I don't have access. In my current category, uh, I just got, I got reclassified in 2019 which is another conversation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but currently I'm in the S10 category, so I don't have access to the 100-meter freestyle as an individual event. What? That's your sport. That's your that's your race. Yeah, yeah. so I only have access to the 50-meter free, and that's what led me to pick up the 100-meter backstroke because I have access to that. But why, what is the rationale for that? Again, like it's any that's the thing like there's no way that every class could have an opportunity to race every single event right like let's just say there are you guys know like yeah. roughly how many events are there on an ownership how many events like how yeah, many there's 13, events, there's 13 events but there's 13 events so yeah. it's 13 times 14 times four you have it in master swimming in master swimming, you mm-hmm. will have that. When you go to master swimmers, you have it by age group, five-year gaps from 25 mm. all the way to yeah. 100. That's true. At the same pace, master swimming is not 85 countries. Yep. And some of these countries are, you know, providing funding and things yeah. like that, too. So all, I'm sure, feeds into it. Um, one thing you, you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Politics. And, and speaking of politics, you know classifications yeah you can dive in as much as you want about your own classification but i think people maybe learning about how athletes are classified would help them i've done classifications Mm -hmm. and there is subjectivity to it people think it's very concrete oh well you have this you're in that you know it's not like that especially with neurological conditions especially i think especially with neurological conditions um let me just start by saying to be it dr john you just said you've been a part of it so to be a classifier, whatever you would, you know, label that, it's not an easy job, okay? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, people are there, they're doing the best they can be, um, but at the same time, they're people. Uh, And in my personal, my humble personal opinion, like, uh, I think people take a look at me, and it's just hard to believe that anything's wrong with me. (laughs) Um, You know, like, obviously, for me to be able to eligible to compete on the Paralympic circuit, I had to go all, I had to go through all the lab tests, right? I had to go through all, you know, I had to run the treadmill like the rats. I had to, you know, go through the maze. That plus, like, I had to go through the experience of, you know, dealing with the disability. I've been fully paralyzed from the neck down for times. Um, I felt what it was like to have full access to my body and then to have 13 years where 
you know, I'm working with what I've got. So originally I was classified as an S9 athlete. Um, and we went to, we went to, uh, we went to trials or, you know, leading into 2019 before the pair of Pan American games, I was reclassified. Uh, I, I think if I could say something to somebody like myself, um, it would be that in order to have the best chance at a fair classification, uh, you need to leave your pride at the door. And, and that's something that I had to learn, uh, you know, because I, I was living, you know, in the proverbial closet with my disability all the way up until the year before. So for a decade, nobody knew that I was living with a disability. I never told anyone. We never talked about it. And, um, you know, I developed these compensation patterns. And whenever someone would call me out on it, I would figure out a way to never be called out on it again. You know, so I kind of call it this illusion of movement. Like I can make it look like I can do certain things that I'm really not doing. You know, like I may look like I'm doing a calf raise, but I'm really like doing a back bend and getting my heels off the ground. So that was a, that, that was something that I had to learn. You know, I was new to the system and I think that, um, you know, just kind of my ego of just, you know, I was still dealing with like, I don't, I'm not really a Paralympic athlete. Uh, and so I think that kind of led to me being reclassified in a higher bracket, but at the same pace, I'll be reclassified here, uh, hopefully in Texas in April, mm-hmm. more humility, um, you know, just kind of like not faking anything, you know, just like being transparent with your ability. Cause that's the only way that these people are going to be able to do the best job they can do. How did you, who helped you get you to embrace that? And how do you feel once you did? Yeah, for sure. So that's going to be my coach, Wilma Wong. So we got together in 2017. I dropped out of college a year before. I swam with Trojan, swam with Dave, swam with John. Um, And then I met Wilma. We trained together for a year. And, uh, you know, out of 12 years, she's the first person. She's like, yo, Jamal, I know you got this dream of going to the Olympics um that's not looking too good but on another note i look at the way that you dive i look at the way you swim i look at the way you pick up your legs when you get out of the car and you remind me of some of my cerebral palsy patients from the past uh and at that point in time that was the first time anyone had ever said anything like that to me so massive relief in that moment i'm like yo that's crazy i actually have this neuropathy uh and and i broke it down to her and she said at that time well listen Unless we can cure it, there's no cure for this. But unless we can cure it, you may want to start looking into the Paralympics. And uh, immediately it went from relief, thank God somebody sees me, to like, don't ever say that to me again. There's nothing wrong with me. Now you're challenging this identity that that I've come to grow into, that I've come to grow into. And uh, yeah, yeah. So early 20. Early 2018, when I first joined the Paralympics, when this was first brought to me, um, it was a non-starter. I wasn't interested. I felt like it was disrespectful. Prior to that, had anyone asked me, you know, are all athletes and people created equally, you know, whether they be pair or fully able-bodied, like most of us in this world, right, whether it be race or ability um, or socioeconomic class, we would say, of course they are all the way up until you actually get grouped into that area (laughs) where you don't really want to be. Then it's like, oh, no, that's not me. I'm not a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And how you really feel comes out. So I I got put into my own shoes, and it was a humbling experience. How did you get introduced to swimming? Yeah. 
That's a great question, man. 10 months old. So I've had, at this point, two 10-year stints in swimming. Wow. Um, so from 10 months old to 10 years old, I went from mommy and me all the way through swim lessons, all the way through swim team. 10 years old, charcoal marie tooth kicks in, bad dislocated shoulder, uh, paralysis, things like that. Stop swimming at 10, pick it back up at the age of 16 as a sophomore in high school, and now I'm 26. So from 10 months to 10 years old, and then from 16 to 26. Did you – so – I'm imagining your your comment about saying that people in your life didn't know about um, mm-hmm. about your disability. And uh, like, so does that mean that they just thought that you tripped a lot? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's exactly so, it. So when you were in high school and you picked, picked swimming back up at, the, at that yeah. point, was it um, you were you were functioning and in, in, in part of like swim team and everything, um, but, sure. but not no classification, no, no para participation no. at all? No, I didn't. I didn't get yeah. introduced or involved with anything para until I was, I don't know, maybe like 23. So until like maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all through high school, I competed D3 like you guys were. You guys were balling out at D1. I went to D3 swim school. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say the D3 doesn't have some fast people, right? like you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, definitely all throughout, you know, my competitive scholastic career, nobody mm-hmm. knew about that. I was just, I was just giving it my all. If somebody would make a comment, like especially even when I was at Trojan. Uh, you know, the coaches, you know, they're looking at my physique. They're like, man, like, why can't you bust out a 20-point in yards? You know, you should be able to do that. Uh-huh. Maybe it's just muscle tightness. Maybe you don't stretch enough. Maybe this, maybe that, you know. But mm-hmm. obviously without the context uh, of being kind of in a in a disabled community um, or having experienced athletes like that, you would have no way. You can't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'd like to clarify, because mm-hmm. I think this happens a lot where the diagnosis isn't right away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially, like you said, you looked healthy, you look strong, mm-hmm. oh, tight muscles, this and that. And I'm sure you bringing up these things as a young kid may not have been received well, or maybe you internalized it a little. Was CMT diagnosed at age 10 or did it take a while to get to that diagnosis? Oh, no, I was diagnosed at age 10. Okay, got it. Uh, it was hard diagnosis. Yep. So, you know, my mom and dad obviously knew it's a hereditary disease, so it's passed down on my mom's side. Some of my uncles uh, also suffered from it, even some of my cousins, so they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, but with my parents, you know, me as a 10-year-old, internally I've had this experience, right? So, like, yep. whether or not I have a definition or a name to call it, I know how it was and I know how it is now. Right. Um, but with my parents, it was never a conversation. It was like, you know, I came out of this temporary state of paralysis, what I describe to people as an inflamed state. Um, and I was left with, you know, the, the, this, this, uh, neurological, right. Um, impairment. And, uh, they just never talked about it. It was, it was one of those things like you're better now. Um, I don't want anyone judging you. I don't want anyone else to be putting you in a box. I don't want you to be looking this up and and seeing this is all people with this disease can do. This is what you're destined. You're destined to be in a wheelchair. You're destined to be in leg braces. Um, and, and that's really where their mindset was. And so even growing up, you know, again, we never talked about it, but I would go, you know, I'm a kid. I'm competitive, obviously. 
I like to do the best. I like to be the best. Uh, you know, we would be in PE class or something like that. Or, you know, we can keep it swimming. When I was 16, I, I tried out for the Los Angeles County lifeguard. So pool lifeguard. I was a pool lifeguard for about eight years. And I'm trying to learn how to do this egg beater kick with 0% nerve capacity from the knees down. So you can imagine how it's going. And I just cannot get this to save my life. I come home and I'm like, this is some BS, man. You know, like what's going on here? And they always told me the same thing. They always said, look, however good you are right now or however bad you are right now, as long as you continue to practice 1,000%, I guarantee you'll get better than you currently are. And, hmm. you know, from a young age, come home, kids are faster than me in school. I'm like, there's no way that this kid over here should be faster than me. You know what I'm saying? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Just keep practicing. I don't know if you'll ever beat that kid, but you'll be better than you are today. And uh, that's really stuck with me throughout my whole life. Have you always had this sort of resilience? Because, you know, I just imagine that, like, that's a pretty heavy thing to come across at age 10. And then, of course, throughout your life and your experience. But you seem like such a positive dude. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, where does that come from? Amen to that. Uh, you know, definitely I'd like to say I am my own man. You know, like, we all got to make choices. We all got to choose our own path at the same pace nobody's truly self-made you know like a lot of the inner voices that i have inside me were instilled from a young age through my family um you know like my faith in god my faith in myself uh my love for people being nice being being courteous being respectful uh you know so i like to think that as as much as my behavior and my talents and accomplishments and and, and my vision and ambition obviously shine myself they really reflect all the people that have poured into me and continue to pour into me you um and you're very honest and authentic in yourself and and even a couple of chats we had an ig dms you were you know you're straight up um and so i feel i i should be straight up right now um yeah. the conversation we had for the last we found the last 20 minutes i'm almost embarrassed that brian john and i had to ask these questions about classifications of paralympic swimming we are like swimming nerds we're hardcore swimming nerds when i swam in canada um, in the nineties, when you went to trials, you also went to the Paralympic trials at the exact same time. Mm. You had, you had, they, they, they were conducted right after each other. There was the Paralympic trials and the Olympic trials. So we knew all the Paralympic athletes. We knew what classifications were. They were as much celebrated as the, as anybody else was celebrated. Um, and so I'm ashamed in the last 21 years, 25 years since that, I haven't been exposed to that. And I encourage more countries to do that. Mm -hmm. To do, Could you imagine being on deck at trials and you're at Omaha and Caleb just qualified for the 50 and Jamal just qualified for the 50 right <laughs> afterwards? That's the way we're going to move forward. However, ashamedly, I was jealous at when I saw some of these athletes qualify in, in the S10. There was an athlete called Benoit Hu. You. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, um, one of the legends of, of the sport S10 qualification. His, and I remember being jealous in my immature university self of like, oh, he just has one calf shorter than the other. Mm -hmm. And that was my, and, 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 and that's how I perceived it. And I, it was a jealousy thing, immature thing. But it's a very important point that you made earlier. Never judge anybody for their classifications and their abilities. And I don't know, I just wanted to admit to that, but I, I just encourage us more to be more like some of the models and people like you driving our sport forward. That's all. That's love, man. That's love. I know the people are going to eat that up, man. Thank you for sharing that, brother Luke. Cheers. Yeah, I think that's a thanks for saying that too, Luke. Because um, 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wasn't around para swimming at all. From uh, the first, the only time uh, in my swimming career was when I was an age grouper, and uh, there was a, a visually impaired athlete who uh, usually came to meets and swam the mile, and and uh, usually just distance events, and, and it would just I would always see him on Sunday. He was at all the meets, um, but there was only usually one or maybe two people, and so like you know, and I think that's the right to call that out. And I wanted to ask. Jamal, so like it's it's I think somewhat of a recent change for the USOC to, and the and the Paralympic Committee to merge and or at least by title and start referring yeah. themselves as the USOPC. Do you feel like where where do we stand right now in terms of like everybody being together <laughs> yeah. like Luke was calling out like all in the same pool deck all together one team? Excuse me. Um, within the U within the, within. Where do we stand, man? I <laughs> humbly, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, I think athletes like myself, you know, who, who's new, uh, but also athletes who have been carrying this world for a long time, like, right? I'm sure you guys saw the Super Bowl ad with Jessica Tatiana Long, mm-hmm. right? Athletes like her. Um, you know, I can name a few other ones, but athletes in the pair space who are, not only doing great work in the pool, um, but are also building their brand outside of the pool, right? Because all the attention that's on them is ultimately on, you know, the stages that they compete on. So I think that's what I'm most optimistic about when we talk about, you know, merging sport. Uh, The first, actually, it's funny that you say that because just last month I was in Texas at the Tier Pro Series. Um, and because of COVID-19, right, uh, the team, any member of the Team USA Paralympic team, right, whether you were A, B, or C team, as long as you had your minimum qualifying standard, you were able to go to this meet, which you would never have the opportunity to do otherwise. You know, so I'm swimming in a backstroke heat with Ryan Murphy and Shane Casas. You know, I'm swimming in a... In a freestyle heat with uh, well, I was in Texas. There, there were like super major freestylers there, but you know all these guys can burn. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So having the opportunity to compete with athletes that I would never share a heat with, uh, let alone probably a pool deck. So uh, that's one thing that's happened. I'm not sure if that's a plan to continue to to intermingle and and to mesh the spaces. Uh, Luke, I think what you said, like the way you were doing it in Canada, is amazing. Um, do I foresee that happening, you know, in, in, in America? I'm not sure. You know, I, I guess Texas is a start, you know, obviously that was kind of a, a forced hand opportunity there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know. Jamal, you've, you also, are uh, uh, African-American black swimmer who, um, has a disability. How does the black community, you know, Let's talk about stigmas and perceptions of the Paralympic community within black community versus the non-black community. I think that's an important perception to have, especially with swimming. I mean, I mean, we talked to Giles Smith a few weeks ago about you. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's bring this back into your world now, too, not just Paralympic world, but also yeah. the American black swimming. That's another layer you have as well. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think the biggest thing is that. Number one, like, I feel like only up until, you know, last, maybe like the last six months has it not been taboo to talk about the Black experience without it being anti-anyone else, 
you know, mm-hmm. like without that being the perception. Right. So right. Yeah. that's a big thing. You know, that, that's a big thing. Like, especially just, uh, especially just number one, as a man, right? Like, you know, as men, I think we tend to just, it's the way it is. You know, you suck it up, you keep it pushing. Like you're here to do what you're here to do. And that's all there is to it. So to, for the first time, really start to feel like, you know, me, I, I kind of have a bad habit of being honest, <laughs> but for it to be socially acceptable, um, to really speak truth to power and, and, and so many, you know, uh, really like PWI spaces, um, was pretty wild. And, and it, you know, it inspired a little bit of hope. Um, but at the same time, you know, just having a brief history of not only America, but having a history of, you know, the modern world as it dates back to like the 16 and 1400s, you know, like we're living in a post-imperialistic, post-colonialism world where from pretty much back then when the initial banks were started, it's been pretty much anti-blackness, you know, like obviously, you know, we're, we're going to get into the drowning rates in the black community and, and you know, my organization working and teaching man people to swim. 3,500 people drown in America every year. This is a first world country. Most of those people are black. The second most affected demographic is Hispanic. The third mm-hmm. most demographic is Caucasian and Anglo. But what a lot of people miss, you know, is that America is still just the 1%. Around the world every year, over 350,000 people drown accidentally, That's right. primarily in black and brown countries. Um, so what we're really talking about is, you know, not something that Brian, John and Luke are, are, are guilty of as being white, but as Brian, John, Luke, Jamal and everyone else is guilty of just in part of the, the indoctrination that is culture of, you know, just kind of this subversive anti-black element uh you know so just, just growing up in that space is like you adapt uh you either adapt or you get swallowed up and you don't make it and that's the ugly truth of it definitely and we were talking with uh i think it was giles and he was saying mm-hmm. you know just there's not always the you know, blanket or obvious things that people say that that bring out this racism or this that you're not included in the sport. He, he yeah. people saying, "Oh, you know, why don't you play basketball? Why don't you play football?" <laughs> I'm a six foot four guy that's well built. Um, yeah, did you experience these situations as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean. I definitely can speak to one, you know, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass anybody because I don't think it's, if I thought it was malicious, it would be a different story. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was malicious, you know, but like I've definitely experienced a coach on a very high level. I'm in their practice. They come to me and they say, Jamal, you got such big hands. It seems like you should have just played basketball. Why, why didn't you do that? And I'm like, I mean, I don't know. I kind of thought big hands would be good for paddles. Um <laughs> They didn't say that about hey, you. Why did you play stock at you and fill up your big feet? No, they didn't say that about right. you. You know, like maybe, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. You know, but uh, not that, not that my experience. You know, and again, you gotta understand. Like, I'm living. I was born and raised in Southern California. You know, like I'm not living in in the South. I'm not yeah. living in you know in, in Britain in, in in some of the projects in Britain. I'm not experiencing what what these people are experiencing in, in certain regions in South Africa. So even my perspective and with respect, Brother Giles' perspective are going to be extremely, extremely privileged perspectives. So I'm always careful to even, you know, 
talk too much about it because I think it takes away from just how systemic and broad the issue itself is um, on, on the mindset of our communities. How many black Paralympic swimmers are there that you know on of? Team USA, there are, on Team USA, there are two. Myself and, and a young brother named Lawrence, who is an S14 with a cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. How yeah. what's your outreach like to other uh, the underserved communities of the world? We know we're going to talk about that in a second, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. underserved, um, uh, able-bodied communities, I should say, of yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, really, my chief of staff, Gigi Mar, shout out, Gigi. Uh, you know, I'm the face of the organization, but there's a team, you know, <laughs> nothing gets done, it takes a village. Um, right now, we're actually, you know, oh, you guys are getting the tea right now. You can't count on this. Everything is working, right? Um, but right now we're organizing with both the Colombian Paralympic and Olympic swimming organizations uh, because, you know, they're experiencing a lot of accidental dress down in Colombia. They're, they're a part of that, you know, 300,000 to a million people that drown every year around the world. So uh, really trying to start to grow some political roots in other countries. Um, really get our curriculum that's designed, you know, to help people no matter where they are in the world uh, with some basic items. So I would say as far as the international community goes, that is the most uh, most developed. We got some other things I want to tell you, but I can't tell you just yet. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll definitely stay tuned for those other things. But, you know, getting back to, like you said, your guys' philosophy, whether you have pool or water access or not. Mm-hmm. Because this is huge because, I mean, we were talking with Roddy Gaines. He was saying he gets a text every time someone in the U.S. drowns. But like you said, it's not even just the U.S. We're the 1%. So mm-hmm. being able to have the curriculum without any water access is huge. So I'd love to learn more about how you develop that and how you continue to look on improving it. Absolutely. That's yo. Thank you, Brother John. That, that's a great question, man. Uh, so in 2018, when I made my first Paralympic uh, national team, um, you know, much like this man behind me, right? Great inspiration, more than an athlete, more than an athlete has become a big movement these days, right? Uh, I knew for a fact, like, look, this is my career. I dropped out of college to go be a freaking pro swimmer. Um, so I plan on winning medals. Like, I plan on being a winner, all right? That, that's just the nuts and bolts of it. At the same pace, uh, I'm about purpose. So I have to be able to offer something more not only to my community, not only to the people who have invested their time, energy, and money into me, but to the world at large, something more than just seeing this pretty smiling face with some gold medals in his teeth, right? And uh, with a background in marketing, that's when we came up with the idea, you know what? Heck, let's teach a million people how to swim. We started to dig into that more, and that's when I actually learned how real this problem actually was, right? How small of a number a million people actually is in the grand scope of, you know, accidental drownings around the world. Uh, So we started ground one. We're like, okay, we need to build a curriculum um, that's going to face two primary problems. The the, the first one is going to be individuals with aquaphobia, either individuals who identify as aquaphobic or have family members who who identify as aquaphobic. And so from 2018 on through 2020, that was all all of our R&D, research and development, How do we create a system to fast track these students from can't swim, I'm afraid of water, to can swim a basic freestyle stroke across 15 to 20 yards as quickly as possible? And I think that's kind of what sets us apart from other organizations. Lots of organizations do cost-reduced swim lessons, which is necessary. 
100% necessary. Um, but, you know, again, just kind of keeping that into the streets, we started to find that some of the larger barriers, it's not so much about the money. And obviously the money is a component, but like, number one, if somebody doesn't know how to swim, chances are the parents don't know how to swim and their parents don't know how to swim, right? So how do we now overcome this psychological trauma? That's a big part of our curriculum. Number two is, right, people don't actually have access. Somehow it's the people that don't have consistent access to pools or calm bodies of water that find themselves at a pool or a calm body of water someday and tragedy strikes, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we fast track that learning process? And that's what really, you know, drove the heart of the bold bench bucket curriculum. We figured these are going to be household items where we can teach proper breathing technique. We can begin to teach an elementary breaststroke. And I feel like even people in a third world country, as long as they have access to water, right? And water itself is not a scarce resource. They'll be able to get a receptacle. They'll be able to get some water and they'll be able to start to learn these skills along this five hour course time. Now, something you asked me about that I'm very excited to announce is how are we improving upon this system, right? And, and that's a big thing. Like I said, we have a five hour course time up until this point. We've been teaching people about two and a half to three hours outside of the water. And then we bring them into the pool for roughly about a two to two and a half hour stint and they can swim. Again, on average, some people happen faster. Some people, it takes more time, right? It's all about establishing an industry standard here, though. What my team is looking into now is really integrating more technology into the experience. Uh, obviously, this may not reach every far reaching corner of the world just yet, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to believe that more people have access to smartphones than they do pools, right? Um, so we're actually working on a partnership right now with Google Cardboard and some of their affiliates uh, to begin to collect thousands of cardboard VR sets with the intention of using the YouTube VR feature to create pretty much this, you know, on a very fundamental level, immersive experience. So once the students have mastered the basic skills on the land bowl bench bucket, they then come into these pre-recorded videos where they practice these skills again, only now they're seeing it in first person before we bring them to the water. So obviously there's still going to be, you know, a buffer zone, but the, the crazy goal and vision that we have is, you know, developing this system to the point where we, we can get people, you know, to learn how to swim and then we bring them to the pool and they can pretty much already swim within an hour. So we've already conquered these, you know, psychological and emotional fields. We've already, you know, help them master the most basic skills, right? You guys know how breathing, how important breathing is to swimming, right? It's everything. Um, and even experience some of it uh, firsthand uh, in, in a first-person setting. So that's what I'm most excited about. That That's our big project and undertaking internally um, for 2021. So, uh, you know, we're working on that. We're, we're fishing our partnerships and yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, um, kudos dude i mean i'm from a third world country lots of drownings people live within 10 minutes of a body of water river or sea um it's a it's afraid it's not in the culture um it's also alcohol and drinking the beach except tons of stuff my kids learn to swim in a bathtub mm. and it was taught by their godfather george Bobels, who says i taught my son who became an olympic medalist to swim by wearing a scuba mask in the bathtub. It made him to be comfortable, put his head under water, and 
be and enjoy being underwater and open up the world of the underwater. And George and then my kids would spend hours in a bathtub exploring the bathtub. Mm -hmm. So when they went to this pool and this water, yeah, no, no problem. Let's go underwater. So they don't panic underwater. Yep. And the learning curve of my children, Brian and John, you can talk to it. It has been exponential because mm -hmm. of the comfort. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And that, that's what we're hitting, you know, that I think that's where I think that's where the biggest gap in service is. People truly understanding, you know, how important comfort is to skill acquisition. Right. It's it's really hard to teach someone something new when all they can think about is how cold they are, how yeah. this is nothing like air, how all the horror stories they've heard from their parents. <laughs> what yeah. if I slip? What if this? What if that? Uh, so, so you hit it right on the head there. I mean, yeah, what, are you, what are you, what are you doing to influence pool temperatures worldwide? Right. Jamal, how, how many David Curtis stories are we missing? David Curtis to me, one of the most exciting swimmers on the planet right now. Yeah. Dude started swimming was eight because his parents says, said, I am afraid that you'll drown. I don't want you to drown. Let's go to the YMC and learn to swim. And the YMCA saw something in this young man. Ten years later, he's the fifth fastest swimmer on the planet. Yo, no, you got to say one. Listen, shout out to the YMCA system. Oh. I, think, I think the YMCA honestly doesn't get enough. I learned that my mommy and me was in the YMCA. I came up in the YMCA. I learned about the YMCA in Trinidad. Right? right. So it's like, shout out. To, you got to shout them out there an amazing organization that they do a, amazing work in communities all over the world so you got to give roses where roses are due but yeah man dg is he, he's a phenomenal talent man uh well spoken you know uh you know just just a young guy and and, and excited about his life um excited you know i i just love to see it. you know it's inspiring to me you know to i saw him on the podcast and uh it's just good, man. Like he's a kid, he's fast, but he's still, you know, he's humble. It's not gone. It's not in his head. You know, he just, he's just enjoying the journey, enjoying the experience. And he's just so excited about what he doesn't know yet. Right. Like what's right. the, come? I, you know, I no predictions. I, I don't have any predictions about the Olympics. I don't have any predictions even about my next meet, man. Like I'm just here to be me and to do the best I can and to enjoy this experience while it lasts. And, I think something that we can all learn, you know, we all forget that at times. So, uh, yeah, shout out to him. He, even Shane Casas, right? This guy, his father, you know, with respect, you know, I spoke to him, his father drowned. And that's how he got into swimming. His mother put him in a swim program and the YMCA. And now, right, this guy also, again, one of the top swimmers in the nation right now. All of these people, you know, have these great opportunities. So, uh yeah, yeah, you know. Talk to him next week. I'm looking forward to talking to him now, dude. Oh, yeah. well, there he is. Yeah, <laughs> man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, forgive me. I know it's not something that he talks about a lot publicly, so I no, hope. It's... <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah, I hope I didn't like overstep any bounds there with his personal, you know, story. But it, it inspired me, so so that's why I spoke. Well, I was going to ask you, but who inspired you? Because um, Brian's at one time teammate, Cullen Jones, was mm -hmm. was the person who David Curtis saw himself on tv he mm -hmm. saw somebody look like him and be the person where he can imagine his dreams be that's a fact man that that's a big fact and i, I mean i love I, oh man i love calling like calling out we chop it up he, he's definitely a great mentor i love the things that he's done just 
for the progression of the sport, you know, inclusion and things like that. Um, but I didn't have the same experience of DC. You know, I didn't have the same experience of David Curtis when I was coming up. I wasn't looking up to Cullen Jones. Like, obviously, I, I knew of him a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wasn't looking up to, you know, a Maritza McClendon. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that I kind of can't name anybody else after those two, right, <laughs> kind of probably speaks to why I wasn't even really looking up to them. You know, I'm looking up to people from other sports. I'm looking up to people in the music industry. I'm looking up to people that, you know, there's more representation of individuals that look like me, that I feel connect to my struggle. Um, and not to say that these individuals don't, but just to say that, like, you know, it's like finding needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah. So you're a professional. How do you do, how do you um, manage your training along with all the work with your organization? Oh, that's a great question, man. Uh, schedule. Yeah. <laughs> schedule. Scheduling is everything. Like I got, I got three huge calendars and I got three journals with calendars in them, day by day schedules. And uh, that's what I rock with. It's taken me five years to really get a good system down. You know, Rome was not built in a day, as they say, right? Um, but at the same pace, also, listen, you guys know this, right? How many pro swimmers are paying the bills off of pro swimming, right? Uh, so, so it's necessary right yeah this this many right how many yeah. Paralympic swimmers are paying the bills off of Paralympic swimming <laughs> right like an even smaller amount yeah. um so it's a necessity it, it's an absolute necessity and and I love the challenge of it I love the challenge of it I love the challenge of uh you know you then swimming for me swimming is not is not the end game for me swimming is not the end goal for me swimming is a platform it's a tool, you know. I love it. Obviously, I take great pride in it. I work hard as heck for it, like I'm sure so many people do. But uh, in this world, um, especially as a pro athlete, you got to be dynamic, okay? You got to be more than just this person who can put a ball in a hoop, who can put 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 a ball in the end zone. Mind you, if you make it to that professional level, you will be you will be compensated slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> But ultimately, you really got to build the character. It's important to, you know, have a foundation that even after the Paralympic cycle, when Jamal Hill isn't the hot news, um, even after the Super Bowl, when Tom Brady isn't the hot news, even after the NBA championship from LeBron James isn't the hot news, that you have enough skills and knowledge and internal infrastructure to be able to support your family and live the life and inspire others the way you want to. You know, Steph Curry has a great ad out, one of my favorite athletes. It's, it's you know, Black History Month is not February. It's not March. It's not April. It's not May. It's not June. It's, it should be every month. Um, dude, you're a superhero. You you have this. You have this. Well, easy for you to say things like that. No, hang tight. <laughs> you have this ability in you that you've embraced and you've used to your full extent. You, the, you, I want you to talk to that, that, that person of color in an underserved community let's say in, in SoCal, mm-hmm. who is dealing with a with a dis, with an ability that he doesn't quite understand and it scares him or her, mm. scares her and loves the sport of swimming. Yeah. You are the superhero there, Fred. You know, but it took you a while to get to that journey. It took you mm-hmm. to that place where you are. You got you know, what words do you have? The you know, the, the journey that you took and where you're at, because that's if if this show helps that one person, yeah. I'm happy, man. Yeah, that, that's a blessing. The first thing I'm going to say is I'm still on the ground level right now, you know. So you watch this podcast 
and you are that person, the best thing you could do is hit me up. Okay, you need to connect with me <laughs> on on Instagram. That's probably the best way. Swim uphill. Go to my website. Go to my organization's website. Myself or my team, we'll get back to you. Like I hop on the phone with people all the time. I'm a busy guy, but I make time for the things that are important, near and dear to my heart. So if this is you that Luke just described, you got a friend in Jamal. You can talk to me. Um, I may not have been all those places, but I've been some of them. And, and you know, we, we could just dialogue about it and, and be a mentor and be a friend. I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, if you decide that's not the path you want to go, you don't necessarily a little bit shy or something like that. I think the best thing I can say to you is like, man, you just on this journey, it's going to be a lot of times where you have a choice to make that anyone other than you would call it absolutely crazy, dumb, insane choice. Okay. But if what you're doing resonates with your heart, mind, and spirit, you need to go with it. If you're not sure if it resonates with that, I wish I had a how-to guide to just make you be able to get it after you listen to this podcast. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But if you continue to try and you focus on it and you go through these experiences and, and you're willing enough to just take a step back and be like, man, what did I learn about myself from this? What really matters to me? What really inspires and touches my heart? You're going to get clear on that, man. Again, you're talking to a guy who I was a physics man. I went to college for physics, D3 school. I dropped out as a junior in college, one year left to go be a pro swimmer, completely unranked, completely unknown, knowing that it's very unlikely that I will ever make a living or a profession. <laughs> right? Like, absolute crazy, absolute crazy. When I write it down, it's absolutely crazy. Um, But I believed. I just felt it. I was like, whether it happens or not, the journey is going to be enough for me. It's going to be enough. If I don't do the journey, I'll always be like, I should have did that. And that's the last thing you want, man. Life is too short. You know, when I die, these medals won't go in the casket. Well, I guess they can go in the casket, but I won't be celebrating wherever I go next. You know, <laughs> like, um, you know, it happens to everybody. So just, just try and enjoy life. It's going to be hard times. It's going to be challenges. But my favorite thing to always say is, like, you got to stay down for the come up, man. Mm. If you believe in something and it's worth doing, it's going to be freaking hard. Like, life has ups and downs. You know what I'm saying? Like, look at all these guys on this podcast right now. Everybody here has had a bad day. Raise your hand if you ever wanted to have a bad day. <laughs> right. Nobody's hands go up. So that's why it seems like such shit luck when you actually have one. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Hey, we got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. All right. Let's hit it. I love this. All right. What's the hardest race in swimming? 50 meter freestyle. Olympic gold or world record? Olympic gold. Greatest para swimmer of all time? Jamal Hill. If you got signed by an ISL team, who would it be? Cali Condors. All right. I know it's all about the journey, but you got to give us goals for Tokyo. Oh, yeah. Goals for – man, you guys are going to kick me for this, but goal number one is make the team, man. Like <laughs> One step at a time. Nothing is locked in. I got to make the team. This is my first go round. I'm hoping not to shit the bed. Uh, <laughs> but goal number one is just to make the team. Uh, if you had asked me this two years ago, I probably would hit you with a, yeah, I'm coming home with five gold medals, man. Like, that's just what's going to happen. Um, but life and experiences, 
they humbled me. Like you can only control what you can control, man. Like you guys know how it is. Swimming, swimming is a fine sport and it could be my best day and somebody else's worst day, or it could be vice versa. Uh, so making the team, representing my country, cheering on my teammates, doing the best I can do in that water. And uh, wherever it ends up, you know what I'm saying? We're throwing a party regardless. All right, let's give everybody listening the playbook. Where can they find you specifically and where can they donate? For sure, Swim Uphill. Just hit Google Swim Uphill. We freaking run that SEO. Swim Up, H-I-L-L. SwimUphill.com is going to take you to my personal site and the Swim Uphill Sportswear Marketplace. SwimUphill.org is going to take you to our nonprofit site. The website looks amazing. Uh, we're doing amazing work. We're teaching a million people how to swim. So if you want to donate or get involved, you know, either with expertise, gear, money, it's all necessary. Go to swimuphill.org. Other than that, you can connect with us primarily on Instagram. Again, just hit in Swim Uphill for Jamal or hit up Swim Uphill, D-O-T-O-R-G, uh, for the nonprofit organization, all right? Jamal, you're the man. We all donated. So everybody listening, it's your turn. Yes. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for hanging out, Jamal. It was fun. Absolutely. See you next time. Thank you guys for having me. That's it for this episode of Social Kick Podcast. We'll see you guys. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, tell your friends about it. And be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at The Social Kick Podcast. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick. And you can find all of our content on our website at thesocialkick.com.